Hello and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. And welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. And happy 2023. We made it. We made it Woo-hoo. all the way through. Yeah. Um, and so we survived the fall semester. And we usually like to do a little recap of kind of how things went. Um, but we thought we'd do something a little bit different. Um, we always ask our guests, you know, how they got into music theory. Um, but we had a request from a listener to do that ourselves, right? Is that right, Jen? One of our That's listeners right. that you yes. know? Yes. One of my students, uh, Elizabeth, said, you never have told us how you guys got into music theory. So I mentioned that and we decided it was a great idea. Yeah. And so we love it when people uh, respond to our Facebook posts or Instagram or write us at uh, what is our email address? No, no doctors, doctors podcast, no doctors podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, because we have had emails. I want to give a quick shout out to Rebecca Jemian, friend of the show. Uh, she's been a guest uh, on our show before. She's a, a wonderful music theory professor up at the University of Louisville. She sent us a wonderful email um, in response to Melissa's episode that aired um in November with uh, JMTP. So thank you, Rebecca, for writing us. And I also want to give a little shout out to Casey Buck. And he is an AP music theory teacher in Conway, Arkansas. I know that exit on 30. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. I've actually been to Conway, Arkansas, believe it yeah, or not. That's great. Well, Ben and Shanna's undergrad. So Ben mm. Dobbs and Shanna Souther Dobbs, who have also been guests. Friends of the show. Went to undergrad. Uh, there so yeah yeah we so, stopped by once yeah so casey you teach ap theory so he wrote an awesome email i'm just going to read a little bit because it's super sweet he says i really love how friendly and approachable you are all as hosts and how you make the listener feel like a friend taking part in a conversation it's clear you not only love music theory but you are also passionate about making it more accessible and breaking down the stuffiness of the old professor slash student relationship it's also really encouraging as a high school teacher to hear that your students have the same struggles mine do. Amen. Do. Yeah. Amen. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you talking about? My students always include the leading tone in minor. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you need so to give us some tips, kidding. Ben. <laughs> right. We really sympathize, Casey. It really is. It's more of the same, isn't it? Yep. Yes, it is. But thank you so much, Casey, for reaching out. And again, if you have any ideas or uh, want to reach out, you can always email us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com. We occasionally check that email address and uh, <laughs> we'll give you a shout out on the show. Um, but today we are talking a little bit about our own um, experience in getting into theory. And I thought it would be fun, rather than just us talking about our history, to frame it uh, through the four stages of dating relationships that I found on <laughs> mentalhelp.net, which you know wow. it's a good website if it's a .net. It's, it's legit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> actually, actually, my personal email or personal website is I was about to say. Thomas.net. I know, because .com, I had it, and then 
um, I didn't renew it, and then it was stolen. And so I had to be oh, .net. And so I feel so 2006. Um, <laughs> but mentalhelp.net gives four stages of dating relationships. Stage one, the initial meeting slash attraction. Stage two, curiosity, interest, and infatuation. Stage three, enlightenment. All right, that's when you go deeper in the relationship and also you become aware of the flaws in the other individual. Mm-hmm. And then stage four is commitment. All right. And so, oh, and also, this is also appropriate because, Jen, you just got married. So you just went through all this thing. So That's right. Shout out. We're congratulations, stage five. <laughs> <laughs> There's only four stages. Well, that's we've graduated. Dating, right? That's yeah, what you've we've graduated. graduated. <laughs> yes. um, and so we are going to kind of walk through each stage of our, our relationship with music theory because it does sometimes feel like you actually are in a relationship um, with music theory. So we start off with the initial meeting or attraction. So mm-hmm. Jen or Ben, we didn't actually talk about this. Who wants to no. go first or anything, but um, anyone want to go first? We'll kind of go round Robin. I can ben, go. Do you want I don't go? mind. Yeah, you go. My first exposure to music theory was AP music theory. I did take AP music theory. It was the first class of AP music theory at my high school. So I will not mention names, but, you know, the teacher was just trying to do the best job they could, given that they had never taught it before, had no materials other than what was given to them probably by AP. And we're really lucky now that AP works closely with, you know, people like Rebecca Jemian and uh, mm-hmm. people that we have on the podcast, like Akira Sato, do a really good job of connecting the materials. But at that time, we had virtually nothing. And it was just a theory class where... Uh, my teacher was drawing from what they did in undergrad and teaching us the best they could given the AP materials. And it was fascinating. It was actually really good uh, when I look back on it compared to some of the other experiences that I've heard from some of my students and things. But it was really good. So yeah, AP theory. And uh, I did well. I did really well. And I, I loved the class. Mine was not as good as yours, Ben, I don't think. My first experience with theory were with experiences with theory were with um, those theory books that you have to fill out in piano lessons. And so, you know, you're fourth or fifth or sixth grader, and along with the music that you're having to practice, which you don't like practicing, you also have this book of theory um, that you had to fill out. And it was basically, you know, just identifying notes and rests and things like that, maybe key signatures, but I hated it. I did not enjoy it at all. <laughs> My dad would have to help me. He was a high school choir director. So he would help me and he'd be like, Oh, theory is very important. And I'm like, no, it's not. This is boring. It'd be like the stuff I would do in the car, like riding to the piano lessons. Just like, Oh, I got to fill out this worksheet, but I did not like it. I was not initially attracted to theory. Um, I knew it was, it was good for me, but, you know, that's the same way you know that broccoli is good for you. Like, you don't want to be like, oh, I want to study broccoli. I want to eat broccoli for the rest of my life. You just have to do it. But so my initial initial um, exposure to music theory was actually not really a positive one. Yeah, it wasn't an Eugene? initial attraction. It was just an It was not an encounter. initial attraction. That's right. Just an encounter. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that I had similar, I remember those theory books. I don't remember knowing that they were like music theory. And I remember even taking a little class, uh, actually at my church, they offered a, a little music theory class for the church choir. 
Wow. And but again, I don't think I really knew that that was music theory. The first time I remember seeing music theory and thinking, what is that? Was um, at our undergrad, actually, Paul and I went to the same undergrad university. And the way it worked when I started there is that your first term, we were actually on quarters when I started there. So your first quarter, they registered you, they pre-registered you for all the classes that someone in your major should take that semester. Now, if you had like, you know, transfer credits from AP exams or community college or dual credit or things like that. And if you played in and sang in every single ensemble at the university, like say me, um, then (laughs) because I was crazy as an 18 year old, um, then you had to do a lot of tweaking to that schedule. But music theory one was there on that schedule. And I remember reading that and the words aural skills one and thinking, what is that? I mean, clearly I have to do it. So I guess I'll find out. <laughs> but that that is my first kind of connection that music theory slash aural skills was a whole sort of discipline or field. I probably had heard those words before. And as soon as I went to class and we were doing things like intervals and key signatures, I was like, I've done all this before. Um, but that was the first time I really connected it with those activities. Yeah. That church choir is quite sophisticated with your theory class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She theory so um, for Jesus. I, well, yeah. Our <laughs> our church choir director no, um, is a she's a piano teacher, and I think it occurred to her it's very logical uh, that if all of the church choir participants could read music a little a little better, that rehearsals might go a little more smoothly and um my church only had guido d'arezzo from 1020 (laughs) there you go exactly right exactly right so martha who probably is not listening to this uh probably might not even know what a podcast is she was my church's guido so (laughs) she uh and she's an incredible lady um but yeah she she taught it herself and she did a really great job i remember learning you know, all my scales and key signatures. We had to memorize all our key signatures. I feel like there were quizzes. Um, <laughs> she, like, in her heart, this woman was a theorist, you know? Like, she she was ready for it. So, Were there any flannel graphs or anything like that? Not that I recall. Um, <laughs> but most of the choir came. And it was the kind of church where you only had choir for, like, the eight weeks before Christmas and the eight weeks mm. before Easter, right? And then you'd mm-hmm. do your, your Christmas show and your Easter show, and then that was it. That's the only time you had mm-hmm. choir. And so this was like the fall before the, you know, big build up to Christmas. We had this class and my parents both wanted to go. So or at least my mom. It seems unrealistic that my dad wanted to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I feel like we all did it together. So anyway, Sunday nights, learning music theory. That's amazing. In the church basement. Mm-hmm. That's great. It all right. Like an so initial attraction. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so now we move on to stage two, which is curiosity. So mm-hmm. yeah, should I read a little bit more about what this means here? Sure. So stage two, curiosity, attraction, and infatuation are most pronounced. All right. And then it starts talking about actually actual physical attributes of the partner, which it's kind of weird. The metaphor starts breaking down rather <laughs> breaking quickly down a little. Yeah. Uh, with theory. But let's talk about... 
initial curiosity, all right? And so I can start this one. So I really kind of thought theory was pretty cool by the time I got to the end of my high school years because I was really into chords, like just any chord, you know, triads, sevenths, ninths, the more, the more numbers after them, the better. Mm -hmm. And I would just, I just loved coming up with chord progressions and that's also when I got into composition. And so it was all about chords and you had to learn how to spell things. And so by that point, I don't remember doing theory worksheets anymore, but I just remember having to spell chords and figuring things out and just loving all of those things. And I was into jazz and I was trying to transcribe Ryan Setzer orchestra, uh, horn wow. parts. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I thought the swing, the swing fad of the late nineties was going to last forever. Like me it, it hit me, it hit me pretty hard. Yeah. It hit me pretty hard when all that like crashed in like 2000. Um, but I was like trying to figure out all these things. And so that's when I was like, wow, I like composition and I also really like theory or I actually like more composition more than theory, but I, um, at Cedar Row where we, where Jen and I both went, they only had like a theory slash composition degree. So like, I like theory. I like knowing how chords work. Um, I probably didn't know all my key signatures, but I knew how to make ninths and sevenths and things like that. So that's really when I became curious and really into it was when when I became a chord guy, which I think a lot of <laughs> pianists or guitarists often become if they end up in the theory route is become really interested in chords. Like definitely, and I'm still really interested in chords. I still love chords, but <laughs> but it was chords it did it for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I. I was, I think, a freshman at Cedarville and going to Music 31 every morning at 8 a.m. or whatever it was. I think it was 8 a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, sophomore theory was at 9. So, like, when you got out of freshman year, you kind of, you could sleep in a little later. You probably needed it by then. I never slept in college. But, um, so, 8 a.m., Music Theory 1. And we had a really spectacular music theory teacher in undergrad. Um, his name was Dr. Coleman, Dr. Jim Coleman. Yeah. And he was a beast, and I learned just a very great deal from him. Um, and that's his classes are when I really was like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is the stuff. And I also loved, I loved tutoring everybody. So all the more I was like, I debated changing my major to theory comp a number of times, but the comp part of it actually kind of scared me, even though I had written a ton of songs and stuff in, in high school. Um, and I probably could have could have done it. But the idea of being a composer, you know, I was like living uh, in the shadow of the the greats there or something right. and felt intimidated by that. So and, you know, my parents were strongly encouraging me down the music ed path. So I stuck it out. But uh yeah, those freshman music theory is really where I completely fell in love with it because it explained all these things that I'd always noticed and seen myself and it gave me the terminology to be able to talk about it or dig deeper into it. So that was that stage for me. All right, I guess that leaves me. Curiosity and infatuation. This does not play out like the way you think because my <laughs> initial attraction did not unfold like you might think. Because I had AP Music Theory in high school, that doesn't mean that I had 
an infatuation my senior year, like Paul, or even in my first year of college, like Jen. I would say the, re the, the time I kind of turned the corner on theory was due to Joel Puckett. And, and Dr. Puckett is the chair of theory and composition at Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. And at the time, he worked at Towson University, which is where I went to undergrad. And I don't say this in a braggy way. I hope nobody interprets this as bragging. I walked into college taking RL Skills 1 as day one. I know I'm going to probably make a 100 in here. I don't really care about this <laughs> class. Um, I would walk in and I would completely unprepared. I never practiced a single sightseeing. I never practiced a single keyboard or anything. And I did great. Um, and like I said, I don't say that in a braggy way at all. I just had some really good skills I'm really lucky to have, and uh, they've served me well over the years. But it wasn't like I had a curiosity truly with music theory. When I got into RL Skills 2, I was kind of interested in dating this other girl in the class. This is actual dating, not just mm. rhetorical music theory. <laughs> just dating. music ah, theory right, dating. Okay. So you were in your uh, initial attraction stage with this woman. <laughs> right, exactly. Your just, to, stage just to sort theory. things out. Exactly. It's getting a little polyamorous. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so I had no reason to pay attention to class. So I was always, oh, I pass a little note over, you know, and oh, I'll, I'll mm -hmm. sing the soprano mm -hmm. part in inversion, you know. And my professor at the time, Dr. Puckett, he said, Ben, I need to see you after class. And to me, Whoa. who's oh. a very much of a rule follower and all of these kinds of things, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm really in trouble with this professor. So he talks to me after class and says, you know, you could be really good at this if you actually tried. He said, I know you're probably <laughs> going to make an A in the class, but there's more, more to it than that. And uh, I guess after him pulling me aside like that, I decided, well, you know what? Maybe he's right. Maybe I should take this more seriously. I was not a theory major. I was a music ed major. Um, and to be honest, if I had to order my priorities, it would have been music ed one, trumpet two, and theory would be third. So I did turn the corner after he kind of talked some sense into me and said, you know what, if you actually paid attention. And then I started paying attention in theory and RL skills. I was like, oh my gosh, is this an example of invertible counterpoint? And then you would see all these <laughs> notes on the side of all my dictations that I would do during the other three hearings, right? Uh -huh. um, so I really, that I would say, probably the second year of college uh, would be when I turned the corner in terms of curiosity. Hmm. Um, yeah. I love this, this Ben, because I've given that speech a few times in my life, and I'm thrilled to hear that that speech sometimes works. <laughs> <laughs> we would like to think so, wouldn't we? Yes. <laughs> Forget the girl. Focus on your dictation. That's right. That's right. right. <laughs> a good lesson. A good lesson. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the third stage. This is where it gets complicated. This is the quote-unquote an enlightenment stage where you mm -hmm. become a couple and let me re read this a little bit this is where both has of the couple will notice weaknesses and differences or flaws cute habits might become irritating at this stage some of those perpetual issues or differences such as free spending or frugal neat and orderly or sloppy and disorganized interested in lots of time together or more involved in outside activities begin to emerge this is when the big question emerges even more strongly where are we headed what are we doing this for? 
And then it says, women have a tendency to ask this question before men. So I guess, Jen, we'll start with you on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds good. So um, I... I knew we've talked about this for sure um, in past episodes that I knew um, fairly early in my music education degree that maybe it wasn't exactly the right fit for me. And I definitely knew it once I started spending time in the classroom because the little kids um, were fun, but the music was less fun and I don't actually like conducting. So I had a pretty good sense that... um, music ed was maybe not the right fit, but I did, I did like teaching. And so I kind of naturally thought that being a, doing a master's in music theory might be a good idea. Um, my parents did not think that that was a good idea, but that's a story for a whole other day. I'm, I'm sure, you know, if you, neither of my, I'm a first generation college student and um, I'm sure that if you grew up on a potato farm in rural Pennsylvania and your daughter says, I want to get a master's in music theory, you're like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so, but he, dad, you know, dad came around. So um, anyway, by the end of my undergrad, I was fairly certain that this is what I wanted to do. And um, my very, very good friend, one of my best friends in the world, Katie Buner, dared me to um, apply to the University of North Texas to their theory program on a whim at like two in the morning uh, one night. And so I did. And then when I got in, everything changed. So (laughs) I got in and I decided I really wanted to go. And um, I got to UNT and um, I want to start by saying there were many, many incredible things about my master's degree at UNT, but that's definitely when I discovered kind of the real profession of music theory um, was while I was doing my master's degree, because to me, it was all about teaching music theory, right? You go get a PhD in music theory eventually so that you can teach it at a university. Mm-hmm. And I got there and discovered that for a lot of people, music theory is about researching and writing about music. And the teaching part is secondary and um, or at least is kind of like a, a co cohabitant, right? Mm-hmm. Not it's a necessary and, thing to do, you know, to pay the right, bills. Right, right. Um, and that's the part that I really loved. So it took me some time. I felt like I was in the right place because in all my classes, um, all the papers I wrote, all of those things, I was like, this is what I like to do. Um, but the idea of researching and publishing felt daunting and scary in some ways. And, um, and I also remember feeling I was one of very few women in the program at the time. And so sometimes I felt a little isolated and, um, there was only one female faculty member as well. And so, um, I spent a lot of time learning from her. She was amazing. Uh, Dr. Groom, an incredible human being all the way around and a fantastic teacher. And she really mentored me a lot. But so that was the phase that that master's degree, maybe even the early PhD was kind of the time of realizing like, this is what the field is really like. Um, This is these are the kinds of activities that you will do. It isn't just teaching. Teaching is a big part of it. That's the biggest part of our day to day, surely. Um, But to get to that part of it, you've got to conquer all of these other things. You're going to have to write a book 
basically, for a dissertation. You're going to have to write a mini book for a master's thesis. You know, all these ideas are going to have to come from you. They're going to have to be original and interesting. And um, so still love it. And I stuck around, but that was definitely the learning curve for me was realizing the whole kind of academic side of music theory that wasn't just pedagogy and wasn't just teaching. I think that's a really interesting observation, Jen, because why wouldn't someone think who's an undergrad Mm -hmm. that a theory, like a person getting a doctorate in theory wants to teach? Right. Because that's what you see them doing. Like that's their job. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, When in fact, that's oftentimes not the case, at least they're for for theorists. That's not why they actually want to be uh, to get the degrees because they like researching and writing about music and things like that, which is, of course, um, is important work as well. But the the teaching piece and I think that's been a transformation, you know, over probably since we started school to now is that that pedagogy aspect of being a theorist has become much more um, valued and mm-hmm. um, uh, lifted up as as equal parts. It's not just about the theory. It's about pedagogy. I mean, with all the conferences mm-hmm. and books being written and things like that, um, there's been so much good work in the recent years um, Definitely. elevating that. So which makes total sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, too, you know, we went to a small liberal arts private university and in a place like that, oftentimes the faculty who are there, um, teaching is their first love. It's a mm-hmm. teaching university. Um, and certainly Dr. Coleman was very passionate about teaching us and enjoyed it. You could tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's even easier to get that sort of ill-informed idea, I guess, about yeah. about what the field really is if that is what you're seeing day in and day out. I didn't really think about it that way, but I think you're right. And so when I got to UNT, then I was inter- interacting with faculty who did have significant research interests and um, who really loved that side of what they do. And UNT is a research university. So um, yeah, I just had no idea until I got there. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's I don't think I even knew that they were composition or theory conferences until no, right. I got to my yeah, past years. <laughs> Yeah. All right, Ben, what about your enlightenment stage? Oh my gosh, enlightenment. It took me a while to attain enlightenment, I guess. Um (laughs) I would say music theory kinda happened into me. That was kind of my enlightenment, is that Hmm. I did not start graduate school with music theory in mind. You know, I got my music ed degree and I loved it. I loved teaching. I still love it. And I said to myself, man, I had been working full time for Hershey playing trumpet. And I said, performance is the way to go. I really think I can commit to this. Um, I had kind of advanced in a few military auditions. I thought performance, that's the way to go. And I came to UNT to study with Keith Johnson. Theory was not in the conversation. And they said, well, you know, you're a performance major. You need to pick a, pick a minor. You need to pick a secondary area of study. I said, ugh. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Why? can I just play? Um, and then they said, well, you have to take all these exams. And, you know, as you all know, we took those exams, entrance mm-hmm. exams. And my theory scores were super high. So I just told them, well, heck, put me down for theory. 
And then I went out to dinner afterwards with some of my friends in performance, and they were like, theory, whoa, what are you thinking? That's a death sentence. Why would you sign up for theory? That's the hardest one. And I said, I don't remember this for sure, but I probably graded your exam. Oh, I'm sure. Because yeah. the TFs graded them back then, and I would have been ahead of you a few years. Yeah, Jen was there. She probably looked at my test. Sure enough, yeah. We had to sing and play keyboard and everything, and I did mm-hmm. fine in everything. So I thought, well, the easiest one's going to be theory. So sign me up for theory. And that was my approach <laughs> in grad school to theory, believe it or not. So I guess the enlightenment for me was that um, I really enjoyed theory more than I thought. And once I got um, a TA, and Jen was my supervisor as TA, so part of that is just having good mentors along the way, no matter what mm-hmm. career you choose. And we talked about that certainly a lot on the pod. But if you have people that look out for you and kind of mentor you and help you with your teaching and uh, give you the chance to do things by yourself, but also encourage you along the way, tell you how you can improve, that would be probably the enlightenment moment for me is that I got a teaching job in theory when I was a performance major. So I was that rogue person that was not in the division, (laughs) but had one of the TA jobs in the division. Oh my goodness. How crazy. I do remember being told that I had a performance major for a TA. I was like, Oh great. Here we go. And then you were like my best TA. I mean, (laughs) so good. And I loved it. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, and I just really liked my teaching experience. And then I, at that point, I kind of crossed over and said, well, maybe I do want to teach theory and, and do the PhD. And then there was, of course, more enlightenment, similar to what Jen was saying during my doctorate. But that didn't happen until later for me. So, yeah, I was that rogue guy that was a performer taking one of the theory TA jobs away. You know? <laughs> That's great. I feel like I was the rogue composer I still feel like I'm the rogue composer, though. It is nice to talk to a lot of people on that are guests that they're like, oh, yeah, I have composition as a degree, too. But um, but I did not really have theory on my radar. I, I technically, my undergrad degree was theory composition, and I did take a counterpoint class, which was I did really weird. I did okay on, but I was trying to go to, like, the flat two instead of the dominant because i love chords you know like, yeah like of course you should go it's just to the, a tritone sub it was that's fine. right it's just a tritone sub i'm sure Pump i can figure out how to do that you know without, without any parallel fifths um but i was just really into composition that's where my interests were that's what i spent all my time doing as an undergrad so i um Got my master's at Bowling Green State University in composition. Um, took mostly all composition classes. I took a couple theory classes. The only one I actually remember was a Shankarian analysis class with Nora Engebretson, which I enjoyed the class, but I was also like, eh, I don't really buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to get hate mail. All right, we're going to get a bunch of hate mail from <laughs> notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com. But I was just like, this just seems so arbitrary. All these little symbols and all the things that we're drawing. Like, do we really know what this means? And so, um, but I enjoyed it. I, I still really enjoyed thinking about how music worked and analyzing things. Um, and then when I went to North Texas, you know, you have to have a secondary area in uh as as part of your phd and so i was like well i like theory and i want to teach at the college level so theory seems like a good option because you know it's it's hard to get a composition only job and i like theory and theory is taught at every school that has a music school Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna do a theory as a secondary area and so i ended up taking a lot of theory and 
Uh, my shining moment, um, I don't mean to brag, all right, but uh, I have to brag, uh, was in uh, Analytical Techniques 3, which was, which was with Graham Phipps. It was a five-week summer class, I think. And oh, boy. Graham Phipps was notorious for giving Bs if you've yep, done an yep. excellent job in your class. And like, it's a good grade, B. And so people would avoid, people would avoid taking him all the time <laughs> because like, oh, you know, even if you do well, you'll get a B. Um, and I did get a B in his Analytical Techniques 2 class. But we were taking Analytical Techniques 3, which is all 20th century, and we had an in-class analysis exam. So it was like an hour and a half. He gave us a piece by or someone, uh, I think it was like Berg or something that we may have, we've been, we were prepped on. And then we just had to write for an hour and a half, basically. And he had like three, three or four questions and just write. Um, and then, and then it was a three hour class. And I distinctly remember this because we had spent the first hour and a half, you know, writing, everyone is just fried. Okay. And then we're like, well, certainly we're going to be excused and get to go home. No, he had another hour and a half planned. <laughs> so yep. we're like, oh man. So I think we're like, we're analyzing Hindemith. I don't know, but, Sounds but right. I, I remember getting that exam back and it, he, I had a hundred percent, a 100. Whoa. From, no Dr. from Dr. Phipps. Holy now, granted, he had marked something wrong and then he had a bonus question, which I had answered. So it wasn't technically everything right, but a hundred, a hundred percent. I was just looking at it like it had to be a typo or something like that. <laughs> um, and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And that's a big like, deal. Well, that was a big deal. It was on the it was on the Thomas fridge for quite a while, and I might still have it somewhere in a in a binder in, the, in a bookshelf. Uh, but that was when I was like, okay, you know, I I feel I'd been doing well, but maybe I could I'm I can I can hang with this. And I remember taking an analytical techniques or no, it was it was analytical systems, and I think I was like oh, the yes. only non theorist. And I was really intimidated in that class too, but I was like, okay, I can hang with these people. I think Jen, you may have been in that class. I might have been, yeah. Um, but that was when I was like, okay, this this could this could work. It's still a little bit weird. Um, I don't buy it all, but um, <laughs> I, I, I like where this is going. So yeah, that was that was my like. Does anybody phase. ever buy it all? <laughs> nope. Uh, nope. <laughs> I still have the receipt. I might return. Theorists are thinking the same thing you are. <laughs> right, right. Well, that then takes us to stage four, commitment. All right. So when did we make that decision and uh, to, to, to just go all in or mostly in? You know, there's always a chance that you could get out of it. But um, So I think when I realized that, yeah, this is what I like to do, this is what I want to do, was probably when I started um, teaching adjunct uh, oral skills at, at Dallas Baptist. And so all my teaching um, had been for my doctorate had been a composition, actually. So I taught composition lessons, undergrads, I taught um, like a composition workshop thing. And so but I, I didn't have much theory teaching experience other than like some grading. Um, and so when I got the job as uh, an adjunct to teach oral skills, only i think it was like intro and oral skills one like that was it i was like all right well uh, let's go for it i hadn't taken oral skills since undergrad let's try it uh i was very nervous extremely nervous uh that first day i thought they were all going to call me out as a fraud um little did i know those intro to student intro to oral skills students didn't even know their soul fetch so i was actually i was actually okay um but <laughs> over probably the course of that that first year 
I really kind of got hooked on it. You know, I really enjoyed teaching these students and thinking about how, you know, how we hear things, how, how important oral skills is, um, and how just thinking in my own life as, as a composer and as a pianist and things like that, how much I use it. And so that really kind of got me excited to share that with, with those students. And I really loved it. I, I loved singing. I loved playing. I loved, I loved all the stuff. I thought it was great. And, and, you know, as I did it more, I was like, well, this is kind of what I want to also be kind of putting going in for my career. Um, because it was also the job market wasn't great. So I was like, okay, let's teach theory. Let's teach oral skills. Let's do some composition lessons eventually. Um, but yeah, I just got hooked on, on teaching it. And, and I think probably every oral skills and theory class I taught that was new to me, I was like, wow, this is so amazing. This is so cool. And you know, you know, you hear that it said like, you don't really understand something until you have to teach it. I think that's definitely true. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think it was just that first year as an adjunct and, you know, and every time I just like, you know, go and sit down at the piano, play a little rule of the octave progression. I've been doing that just like to kind of <laughs> chill out, like just to like calm down. I like go play rule of the octave in a key, do a couple different variations, you know, do it in minor, do it in major. It's just like so amazing how those notes just kind of fit together. And I don't know. I just love it. I think it's amazing how, you know, the chordal seventh resolves down. Like that's amazing. Um, <laughs> And so, but I have a uh, my adjunct experience to to help for that. So that's when I, I, I said yes, to the, <laughs> not dress, uh, yes <laughs> to the, the theory, the theory. Yeah. <laughs> ben, you should go. Sure, I'll go. When did I say yes? Let's think. Probably when I went into my trumpet lesson, and I had to tell my trumpet teacher I'm dropping trumpet and switching to theory finishing my master's but that'll be the end of the road for me i had just played my master's recital on trumpet and uh i decided you know what i'm gonna switch and i'm gonna do theory i'm gonna cross over to the dark side <laughs> and i'm gonna be a theory major how am i gonna ever break this to my trumpet teacher who you know gave me a scholarship to come here for trumpet and all this and he was kind of hoping for me to stay on for a doctorate in trumpet and I still remember that conversation. And uh, I just said, well, I think it's going to be better long-term for me to do theory. I think I really like my experience teaching. As you know, as you guys talked about in yours, it's like when you get in a classroom and you're in front of a group of people and it just energizes you and you just feel that energy. Like, I don't know how to describe that, but it's always been there for me and I hope that I never lose it. But as soon as I get, even if I'm having a bad morning up to that point, when I get into class, especially oral skills, you know, I just feel the energy. I'm ready to teach this. I'm excited about this information. What is it that I can't describe that really? It's hard even having done it now for many years. But walking in and you feel that energy. You think I'm meant to be here. This is part of my hmm. calling to make this material like usable to use my music ed background. People ask me, do you use your other degrees? Well, of course I do. Of course I use my music ed degree. Does this relate to performance? Of course. When I was out in the job in Hershey, we talked of tunes in terms of the solfege. And people would ask you, do you know how to play X? Well, how do you think you play X? Well, you basically have to hear it in your head and then play that thing. I mean, I use all three of my degrees. But in terms of saying yes to actually 
music theory as a as a profession was probably right at the end of my master's and deciding to do the PhD and saying, you know, well, I'm getting a PhD in theory. I'm kind of headed towards teaching theory. And I'm headed towards academia, um, you know, as a, as a preference. And uh, I haven't regretted it, luckily. I mean, wow. I just still get that energy every time getting in front of the class. And, you know, I look back at my student evaluations. That'll really tell you something. When you have to do a dossier after five mm-hmm. years, you look back at all yep. your student evaluations. The highest thing I got was instructor's enthusiasm and instructor's belief in students. Mm. And then I will, I, will be, I will be very honest about the lowest one that I got, which was use of textbook. And I'm also proud of that one. <laughs> That's pretty good, um, yeah. But yeah, it's that enthusiasm that I can't mm. describe that I guess probably represents the commitment more than anything else, you know, mm. for me, yeah. for me. Yeah, I taught oral skills one for the first time in probably like seven years uh, this semester. And we had our first week this past week. And that first class, after I was done teaching, I was like, this is the best. I mean, all we had done, we were singing, you know, things are going do, re, mi and super simple (laughs) things. Uh, But I'm like, this is so awesome. And I just loved it. Yeah. I haven't taught oral skills in a couple of years and certainly not oral skills one it's been several years and i'm just like itching to do it mm. and I, I i told paul this earlier but i make my own schedule i'm the one who picks who teaches what <laughs> at, at dbu <laughs> so but i've had a i've had a whole slew of theory majors that i've had to get through upper level courses and things like that so that's been largely the reason why i haven't done it but i'm like no matter what i'm teaching it in the fall it's going to happen. It has to yes. happen. So, yeah, I miss it. Yeah, scratch that itch. Yeah. Well, so um, saying yes to music theory for me was kind of saying no to something else. So um, I actually put myself through grad school working first on campus at, at UNT at their Performing Arts Center. Um, that's another long story for another day, but I basically stumbled into a, a front of house manager job at the Performing Arts Center. And um, I worked that job throughout the entirety of my two degrees at, at UNT up until I got my full-time job at DBU. And um, it turns out, well, ironically, I applied to be an usher. So again, that's a story for another day, maybe. But somehow I applied for like a five fifty an hour usher job and ended up with this uh, front of house manager position. And I loved it. Um, I loved every minute of all of that work. I eventually also started to work for um, the Shakespeare Festival of Dallas, in the, which is a mostly summer thing. And I would, um, front of house manage down there in the summers and working in that world. Eventually I, there, I also was like producer on deck and associate front of house producer, things like that. And I also eventually at the performing arts center worked as the assistant to the executive director. Um, but I loved all of it. I loved the excitement of it. I loved how unpredictable it is. And I love a lot of those same things about teaching. Um, teaching is really unpredictable. You don't know what they're going to ask. You don't know how it's going to go. Your technology can fail. And then you got to come up with something on the spot. You know, there's all sorts of things that can happen, but that's especially true in live performance. You never know what's going to happen. And, um, I also got to see some incredible things in, in that role. I got to meet some incredible people. Um, I met Dave Brubeck. I met 
Spike Lee. I met, um, goodness, so many incredible human beings, um, and famous musicians. Um, it was, it was a really fun, uh, job and I had a knack for it. I liked it a lot. And so for pretty much all of my masters and the first year or two of my doctorate, I was always just hot in debate of, am I going to finish the PhD in theory, or am I going to try to pursue a sort of arts management position somewhere? And, um, at some point they were building the new opera house in Dallas and my boss at UNT at the performing arts center was best friends with the operations manager, um, for that build. So it was cool. I got to see the building. I had a hard hat tour more than once of the, of the building while they were building it. It was really neat. But at some point, um, the question came up of like, who's going to be their front of house person, their lead front of house, you know, producer or whatever. And I had the opportunity to apply for and potentially get that job. And I remember really sitting with that and realizing that meant quitting the PhD. There's no way. I mean, if you've ever worked in that world, then you know that those jobs are 60, 70, 80 hour a week jobs. There's no way you're going to do a PhD in music theory while you're doing that kind of work. So it would have meant putting the PhD on hold or probably realistically stopping it altogether and never being in the classroom again. And that's when I knew that that wasn't going to work. I couldn't give that dream up. And I'm glad I didn't. I love what I do. But yeah, so for me, it was about kind of crossing out this other, like checking off this other box and realizing like, that's not the direction. This is, this really is the way to go. Yeah, I'm glad you did. So now we're married. <laughs> me and John and me and music theory. <laughs> oh, man. I think that's just so interesting because we all have these other interests, you know, that, <laughs> that we have in music or, and it may just, in even beyond music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, everyone has to make those types of choices. And so we, we just happened to choose music theory and, and we're all, we're glad we still did. We're all, you know, we're, <laughs> we're not like uh, complaining about it. Right. And so, so that's great. So we're all in relationship at least for another semester. Right. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, that is, that's, our story, that's our stages of the theory relationship that we all have from initial contact to curiosity, to enlightenment, to commitment. And so if you have listened to this whole thing, you have your own story, you can always let us know. We can, uh, if you want, we can talk about your story. If you write us at uh, Podcast at gmail.com um, or Reach out to us on Facebook, on Instagram. We're on both of those things. Um, But we'll be back with more episodes with amazing guests. And uh, we'll talk to you then. Bye. (laughs) Bye. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast. And you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.